worship hour, and I know this is a little bit different than what we normally do on a Sunday basis, but I am excited to see the turnout this morning. I believe it will be well worth your time. Uh, Colin Smothers currently serves as the Executive Director of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He holds a Ph.D. in Biblical Theology from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he has also taught adjunctly. He also holds a Master of Divinity from Southern Seminary and a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from Kansas State University. Colin is married with four children and is a member of Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, let's welcome Colin Smothers to uh, the pulpit this morning. Thank you for that kind introduction. Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Thank you so much for, for having me. You know, a few weeks back, uh, my family and I, we were eating hot dogs for dinner. And about halfway through dinner, uh, my three-year-old daughter took her half-eaten hot dog and she put it back on the serving plate where she got it. And as a dad... I saw this as a teaching opportunity, and I said to her, we don't put food back on the serving plate. Would you please put it back on your plate? And almost without hesitation, she said back to me, is that what it says in the Bible? <laughs> and I did just what you did. I laughed, and I looked over at my wife, who was also smiling, also trying to hold back her laughter, and she's a little quicker than I am. She said to my daughter, no, but the Bible does say children obey your parents. And with us laughing, uh, that about settled it for dinner. But a little bit later when I thought about that exchange, it dawned on me how profound her question really was. And also what that question represents about what my daughter is learning about our family and that's this our family obeys the Bible the Bible is our final authority even higher than the authority of her parents and it's our family in our family we do what the Bible says and this same question that came to my daughter a couple weeks ago is a question that I think we should all be concerned with this morning and also the rest of our days. And that's the question, is that what it says in the Bible? This is especially true as we're looking at the issues of sexuality and gender. The world-renowned historian, uh, William Manchester, he also wrote a three-volume biography of Winston Churchill. Here's what he once wrote. The erasure of the distinctions between the sexes is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. I'm going to say that again. The erasure of the distinctions between the sexes, between male and female, is not only the most striking issue of our time, it may be the most profound the race has ever confronted. Now, if you think that's a little bit overblown, Listen to these words from radical feminist Judith Lorber, who's in favor of this erasure 
she says this, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes, only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal. And when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender at all. Back in 1987, the leaders of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which that's the organization I serve as executive director, these leaders got together to produce a document called the Danvers Statement. The Danvers Statement on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it was meant to clarify for the evangelical church what the Bible teaches about men's and women's roles in the home and the church. I need to do something different with the mic. I'll keep going. Well, 30 years later, last year in 2017, the leaders of CBMW again convened another meeting, this time to produce a document called the Nashville Statement, and this time to, to clarify for evangelicals what the Bible says about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. For the ministry that I serve, these are related issues. If men and women are interchangeable in the home and the church, then why aren't men and women interchangeable in marriage? If men and women are interchangeable in the home and the church, why aren't men able to become women? and women to become men. In an infamous Supreme Court decision from 1992 titled Planned Parenthood v. Casey, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote these astonishing words. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And I'm arguing today that this is what we're facing in our culture. It's a war over the very definition of reality, the concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. And as Christians, we've got to recognize that it is not we who, desi- who decide the answers to such questions. It's our creator who decides. And he wrote a book. So what does it say in the Bible? What does the Bible say about gender and sexuality? This is the question I want to answer this morning. And in so doing, I'm going to try to lay a foundation for what we might call a biblical sexual ethic. Or shortly, biblical sexuality. When Jesus was asked about marriage and male and female relations in Matthew 19, he answers by going back to the beginning, to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, in order to explain God's will for men and women. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus with a question about divorce. Listen to this exchange recorded for us in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. 
And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. In this passage, Jesus lays down a kind of hermeneutical, which hermeneutical, that, that just means how we read the Bible and how we interpret the Bible. So Jesus lays down a hermeneutical and an ethical. By ethical, I just mean how we apply the scriptures to our lives and decide what is right and what is wrong. In this passage, Jesus lays down a hermeneutical and ethical principle that's followed by Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers. This is the principle. It's very important and we're going to keep returning it, returning to it again and again. The pre-fall creation narrative recorded in the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2 sets forth God's design for humanity. The pre-fall creation narrative recorded in the book of Genesis in chapters 1 and 2 sets forth God's original design for humanity. And it's in these chapters that we see how God designed the world to function. And it's this design that he calls good and very good. But we all know what happens in Genesis 3. Sin enters the world and it mars God's original design. Sin distorts and it disfigures creation and nature, including our relationships between one another as male and female. And since we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, we're living after Genesis 3, we've got to recognize this as we encounter distortions and disfigurements in our own lives and also in the lives of the people that we encounter. But we've got to remember Jesus' words. From the beginning, it was not so. And so when those Pharisees came asking Jesus about right and wrong with respect to marriage and divorce, Jesus essentially tells them, you're thinking about this all wrong. You're going about this the wrong way. And he points them back to God's creation design Quoting from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he says, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's from Genesis 1. Then Jesus says in Genesis 2, or quotes from Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When he points back to Genesis 1 and 2, he's reasoning with them from the beginning. This is what I want to do this morning. I want to lay out the Bible's view of sexuality from the beginning. 
In the same way that I would argue that the Bible grounds male and female relations in the home and the church, back in Genesis 1 and 2, in that same way, the Bible grounds our understanding of biblical sexuality in those same chapters, in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm using that term, sexuality, broadly to mean both sexual activity and desires, as well as our experience as persons embodied as male and female, who have male and female sexual organs. So in this sense, I'm using sexuality to refer to how we relate to one another, which includes how we think about our gender and our biology, as well as our sexual activity. So here's this morning's outline. It's, it's very simple. First, we're going to see that the creational norm for mankind created male and female with sexual potential is for complementary monogamous procreative marriage. Now, that's a mouthful, and we're going to spend about the first half unpacking that whole thing. I'm going to say it again. The creational norm is mankind created male and female with sexual potential for complementary monogamous procreative marriage. There's three subpoints there. First, God made mankind to come in two varieties, male and female. Secondly, the God-ordained context for sexuality, sexual union, is covenantal complementary marriage. And thirdly, we're going to see that one of God's ordained purposes for sexual union and sexuality is procreation, is for having children. So that's the first half. And then the second half, we're going to see two ways that we see mankind in sinful rebellion against God and against his creation today. We see this first off in men and women who pursue sexuality outside the covenant of marriage. This includes both heterosexual and homosexual pursuits. And secondly, we see men and women rejecting their God-given sexual identities as male or female. Some of you may be familiar with that acronym LGBT. It's hard to, hard to miss it if you're reading the, the newspapers. The first category of mankind's rebellion this pursuit of sexuality outside the covenant of marriage, that covers the first three of those letters, lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And then the last point, the rejection of God's uh, given identity as male and female, that covers that last letter, T, transgender. So that, that's our general outline. Now we're going to start diving into the text. Going back to the beginning, just as Jesus directed those Pharisees, before the fall in Genesis 1 and 2, we find three truths about God's design for human sexuality. And these should inform our entire biblical sexual ethic. I named already, God made mankind to come in two varieties, male and female. The God-ordained context for sexual union is covenantal monogamous marriage and one of the God-ordained purposes for sexual union is procreation. So that first thing we see from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 teaches that human sexuality, it says that God created mankind to come in two 
and only two kinds, male and female. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 26. Genesis 1:26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What we see from this passage is that when God sets out to make man, he intends for mankind to come in two equal yet different varieties. Equal yet different. Notice with me that both the male and the female are created in the image of God, signaling their fundamental equality. Male and female are equal in the image of God. Yet, it's clear from this passage, male and female are distinct and can be distinguished from one another. This sounds very, very basic. Our science textbooks used to tell us these things. Male and female are different and distinct. But we can't assume these fundamentals any longer, and we have to go back to the beginning. If we look closer at Genesis 1.27, the words original that, that underline these words male and female, they actually make subtle references to the biology and the sexual organs of male and female. Now, I don't want to get too involved here, but uh, I'm, I'm going to make an argument about this. The Hebrew word for male actually means sharp or pointed. You can draw your own inferences as to why that is. And the root for the Hebrew word for female actually derives from a word that can mean cavity or hole. Now, I'm not trying to be crude here. What I'm trying to say is the very words that the Bible uses are meant to direct us to our fundamental biology and the way that God created male and female. What we can take from this is that being male is a biological reality that we can see most clearly in our sexual organs. And being female is a biological reality that we can see most clearly in the sexual organs. And so when we move to Genesis chapter 2, which kind of gives us a zoom lens on this special creation in day 6, and we read more detail about God's creation of Adam, the man, and Eve, the woman, the Bible actually assumes that we know which one is the male and which one is the female. It doesn't tell us. But it, it assumes that we know that the man is the male and that the woman is the female. In short, Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that men are men because they are male. And they are male because of their male biology. Similarly, women are women because they are female and they are female because of their female biology. Again, sounds very basic, but there is no category in Genesis 1 and 2 for a male woman, something you're going to encounter in the culture. And there's no category in Genesis 1 and 2 for a female man, again, something you're going to encounter in the culture. 
That's the first thing we can learn from Genesis 1 and 2. A second thing we can learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created mankind with sexual potential for marriage. In Genesis 2, after God creates the woman from Adam's side and he, he brings her to, to him, and remember when, when Eve is brought to Adam, he exclaims, it's kind of this moment of rapturous poetry. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, speaking the equality of, of woman to man. They are equal in dignity and in worth, bearing the image of God. He says this, and then right after that, what's important for us to see is what the author of Genesis puts directly after this episode. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Right after woman is brought to man and they're, they're brought before God, here's what the author of Genesis says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this way, what the author of Genesis is doing is he's taking the creation narrative, how God made things, and making conclusions for the way that we ought to live. Therefore, because of this, because of the way that God created mankind, therefore, we have obligations and duties in other words God made the world the way that he did in order to teach the world about how it's supposed to work and this is God's original design for male and female sexuality for the sexual union it's covenantal complementary marriage one man one woman for life this term, one flesh, in Genesis 2.24, it, it speaks of both a physical and a spiritual unification. The math is one plus one equals one in Genesis. And this description sums up concisely the Bible's teaching about what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is the joining of one man and one woman for life. Not more than one man, not more than one woman, not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, but one man, one woman, and becoming one through their natural and sexual complementarity. Now, why did I begin with Matthew 19? Because this is the vision that Jesus directs us back to. He doesn't create some new teaching as God himself on earth. He could have. But what does he do? He points us back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, to teach us about how marriage is supposed to work. These chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, they form the foundation. A third thing we can learn from Genesis 1 and 2 about human sexuality is that one of the purposes... For sexuality, why did God create us as sexual beings? Well, one of the reasons is for procreation in the context of marriage. Flipping back with me to, to Genesis chapter 1, right after we read about God's creation of mankind as male and female, we read that in Genesis 1, 1.26 and 27. Here's what happens in Genesis 1.28. This is what we read. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This verse is often called the creation mandate. And it's actually given to both man and woman. From this creation mandate, we can find out one of the reasons why God created male and female with sexual potential. It's right there in verse 28. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I'd submit to you that in this creation mandate, we have a radical and very countercultural message. Here it is. The blessing of children is a very integral part of marriage. Now before we move on from this point, it's important for us to recognize that there are many, many couples in our pews that struggle with infertility. And it's a struggle that the Bible is very familiar with. All we need to do is think of the stories of the patriarchs. Think about the barrenness of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Jacob's wife, Rachel. These all at one time were unable to conceive and bear children. Again, we've got to be clear. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world. Sometimes things don't work the way they're supposed to, to work, according to God's design. But what we're talking about in the creation mandate is God's original design. And as best that we can, and as best that the Lord gives grace to us, we should attempt to approximate this design through means that honor the Lord, even in the midst of barrenness, such as adoption, foster care, etc., but the important thing I want to see here is that the creation mandate, that mandate of be fruitful and multiply, that comes right on the heels of God's creation of man as male and female and as the purpose, one of the purposes for marriage. And it's a purpose for sexuality that I think that our culture has almost completely lost. Instead, what do we do? We make sexual fulfillment the, sex, the, the central concern of our sexuality. How can I be fulfilled? How can my needs be met? And in so doing, it makes sex an idol. It's not hard to see how our culture has made sex an idol. But the Bible says our sexuality finds fulfillment in procreation within the covenant of marriage. The world says sexuality finds fulfillment in personal expression and self-gratification. This is a message we have to recover as the church in our culture. There's a few things we can, we can draw from this close connection between procreation and marriage. First of all, heterosexuality outside of marriage, heterosexual sexuality that takes place outside the covenant of marriage it's forbidden in the Bible in part because it doesn't take place within that context of marriage that is committed to the rearing of children that might result from that union that's one of the logical reasons why sexuality is forbidden outside of marriage 
Another thing we can see is that heterosexual sexuality inside of marriage that is not open to the good gift of children is actually contrary to God's original design. Another thing we can see from this connection is that homosexual sexual activity, by definition, it cannot result in one flesh unions. And therefore, it cannot consummate a marriage according to the Bible's definition. Well, why is that? Because homosexual sexual unions cannot be procreative. You see the logic there. If we lose the procreative piece of marriage, for, which is part of God's original design, we're redefining marriage to be something that a homosexual union can take part in. We've got to bear witness to this truth from Genesis 1 and 2. So to sum up everything to this point, what we find in Genesis 1 and 2, which lays the foundations for everything we're going to do next, is this. God made mankind to come in two varieties, male and female. And they don't, they don't interchange. They don't flip. Secondly, the God-ordained context for sexual union is covenantal, complementary marriage. And third, one of the God-ordained purposes for sexual union is procreation. This is the norm that the Bible reinforces over and over and over again. Think about the two lovers in the Song of Songs, male and female. Think about Jesus' reaffirmation in Matthew 19. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Think about Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5, talking about husband and wife. Not only that, but he says in Ephesians 5 that this mystery, the mystery of marriage, is profound because it points to Christ and the church, which finds ultimate consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. This is the creational norm reinforced over and over again. You see, gender and sexuality and marriage, these were invented by God. What that means is they existed long before any state came into being. In this way, we can say that marriage is actually a pre-political institution. It existed and will exist far beyond any political institution. Marriage is not the invention of man. It's not an archaic holdover from patriarchal times. It's God's original design. And therefore, it's God who defines it, not us. Listen to what Justice John Roberts wrote in his dissent in that infamous court case at the Supreme Court, Obergefell. If you recall, Obergefell legalized gay marriage in all 50 states. Here's what Roberts said. He's actually dissenting from the opinion. He's disagreeing with the majority. As a result of this decision, the Supreme Court invalidates the marriage laws of more than half the states and orders the transformation of a social institution 
that has formed the basis of human society for millennia. For the Kalari Bushmen and the Han Chinese, the Carthaginians and the Aztecs. He's saying the Supreme Court has redefined marriage to be something that all of human history would not even recognize anymore. And here's what he asked at the very end. Just who do we think we are? I'd echoed Justice Roberts' question here, and I want to take it one step further. Just who do we think we are? We who have an infallible, inerrant testimony in the word of God of what marriage is designed to be and what God defines marriage to be. Just who do we think we are? As Bible-believing Christians who are concerned with what the Bible says, we've got to bear witness to the truth, no matter what our society and our culture may say to the contrary. Well, with, with that first part out of the way, the foundation, Genesis 1 and 2, forming the foundation of our biblical sexuality, there's two ways that we see mankind in rebellion against this design. First, we see the pursuit of sexuality outside the covenant of marriage. And second, we see the rejection of God's of one rejection of one's God-given identity as male or female. So that first point, the Bible clearly teaches that the only context where sexual activity is condoned or sanctioned is within marriage. What we've got to be clear about is this applies to both heterosexual and homosexual activity outside of marriage. If the culture hears us banging the drum on homosexuality all the time, and we never address the sexual problems or heterosexual problems within our pews, they're going to rightly call us hypocrites. We've got to be clear that the Bible prohibits sexual activity, both heterosexual and homosexual activity, outside the covenant of marriage. The most famous passage we could cite against heterosexual activity outside of marriage is, the tenth, is in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, you're familiar with it? It's that seventh commandment. Here's what it says in Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now what's clearly forbidden in this commandment is sleeping with another's spouse. And the reason why it's forbidden is because it breaks two covenants. The covenant between you and your spouse and the covenant that that person that you might be sleeping with made with their spouse. But what I want to notice what I want us to notice here is that if we keep reading in the Ten Commandments, adultery is not the only sexual sin that's forbidden in the Ten Commandments. Look with me uh, at Exodus 20:17, where we, we read the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What's prohibited in the 10th commandment is even the desire to commit adultery. Did you catch that? Literally, we could translate this text as, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. So when Jesus is teaching about 
marriage and adultery in that famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount, all he's doing is he's connecting the dots between the seventh commandment and the tenth commandment. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's important for us to remember, church, that when we're talking about biblical sexuality, especially when we're talking about homosexuality and transgenderism, the Bible is equally clear about heterosexual sin. Both sex outside the covenant of marriage, whether that be before marriage, during marriage with someone not your spouse, or after marriage with someone you're not married to, and the desire for such sex, these are categorically forbidden by the Bible. What's more, God's design for marriage is that it would be lifelong. Jesus is absolutely furious with the Pharisees in Matthew 19 when they they try to throw the words of Moses in Jesus' face in support of their licentious teaching on divorce. One rabbi of that time was actually teaching that it would be okay for a man to divorce his wife if she burnt the toast. No joke there. And Jesus is saying that is wicked. That policy of divorce, that no-fault divorce is wicked. In Malachi 2.16, God says this about divorce. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. A fully formed biblical sexual ethic must be clear about what's forbidden in the Bible when it comes to heterosexual sexuality. What's forbidden is sexual desire for someone not your spouse, sexual activity with someone not your spouse, and even cases of unbiblical divorce. How many of us are striving to be just as clear about what the Bible says about these things as we are about the sin of homosexuality? Church, let's not be hypocrites. But a biblical sexual ethic doesn't merely prohibit heterosexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. It also clearly prohibits any kind of homosexual activity. Now notice I didn't say the Bible forbids homosexual activity outside the covenant of marriage because I don't believe that homosexuality can constitute a marriage according to the Bible's definition. Instead, the Bible teaches that there's a kind of a catch-all term to describe any sexual activity that, that is not condoned in the biblical sexual ethic. That term is sexual immorality. And the Bible's uniform witness here is that homosexuality falls under this category of sexual immorality. Genesis 19 is the first place we encounter the sin of homosexuality. In fact, our word sodomy comes from this, from this story. The story about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, we read about two strangers who come to warn Lot against God's impending judgment. These strangers turn out to be angels, actually, later in the story. And they tell Lot that God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of their extreme wickedness. 
And when the town hears about these two strangers coming into town, all of the men of the town come and start knocking on Lot's door. And they want these men to come out to them so that they can rape them. And Lot refuses. And eventually the visiting angels, they strike, strike all those men blind. Well, it's clear from later biblical revelations, such as Ezekiel 16 and Jude 7, that part of the reason why God says that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are extremely wicked is because of their homosexual sin. Here's what Jude 7 says. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. As we'll see when we come to Romans 1, the notion of unnatural desire, it refers to things that run contrary to nature, which isn't referring to nature how we see it today, but nature as God designed it to be. That's why we spent so much time laying that foundation of Genesis 1 and 2. When the Bible speaks of what's contrary to nature, it's talking about what goes against God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2. And homosexual desire and homosexual activity is contrary to to nature. In the first place we see that Bible clearly forbid the sin of homosexuality is actually in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And in these chapters Moses is giving uh, the people of Israel a kind of code to live by as they go into the land to distinguish themselves from the pagan nations around them in Canaan. I'm going to read from Leviticus 18, 20 through 22, and then Leviticus 20, 10 through 13. Listen to what the Bible says. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, 10 through 13 says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife and he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. And then verse 13 if a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. The first thing I want us to notice about these two passages is that in both places where homosexuality is forbidden, the sin of adultery is forbidden right alongside. Did you, did you catch that? Now, some revisionists who, who want to say that the Bible condones homosexuality who say that the Bible actually blesses homosexual marriage, here's what they'll try to say. They'll try to say that Leviticus 18 and 20 no longer apply to the New Testament church. We're in the New Covenant, no longer in the Old Covenant. So we can take everything in the Old Covenant and kind of chuck it out the window. But this argument fails on a couple of counts here. First of all, you'll never read the revisionists saying that adultery is no longer a problem for the New Testament church. They don't want to take out Leviticus 18.20 and Leviticus 
20.10. They just want to get rid of Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 20, verse 13. And secondly, this argument fails because the New Testament writers consistently affirm the Old Testament's sexual ethic. Even with respect to homosexuality. And that's what we see when we turn to Romans 1. Romans 1 is the most detailed and probably the most important passage on the sin of homosexuality in the Bible. And it also happens to be in the, one of the most consequential letters in all of history. So turn with me in Romans 1, and we'll start reading in 1.18. In Romans 1.18, Paul gives us this summary statement <clears throat> for this section. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In this book, in the book of Romans, Paul is going to great lengths to explain the good news that he's been given by God to proclaim. But in order to get to the good news, he's got to tell people the bad news, which makes the good news good. And the bad news is that mankind... You and I are in, are, in bel- are in rebellion against our creator, apart from Christ. And that God's wrath is coming against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. In this passage, we read that apart from Christ, we attempt to suppress the truth, what we know about our creator. And we exchange it for lies that we want to believe. In the following verses, in In verses 19 through 20, Paul points back to the creation of the world, those same chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, as the very things that mankind is rejecting as we suppress the truth. With that context in mind, read with me in Romans chapter 1, 21 through 27. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator rather than the Creator, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Mankind, as we suppress this truth about God, the truth that's clearly revealed in nature, looking around us in everything that was created. As we suppress this truth, we turn to the idolatry that is worshiping the created things rather than the creature. And in these verses, we find a kind of chain reaction of sinfulness. First, we find the suppression of truth, and that leads to the dishonoring of God and not giving thanks to him as our creator, the one who gave us life and breath and being. And this leads to an idolatry 
to worshiping the created things rather than our creator. And what this does is it leaves God to give us up, hand us over to ourselves, to our dishonorable passions. In verse 26 and verse 27, Paul is clear about what these dishonorable passions entail. Women exchanging natural relations. Again, how are we defining natural there? There's those that are in accord with Genesis 1 and 2. Women are rejecting those natural relations for those contrary to nature, contrary to Genesis 1 and 2. And men giving up natural relations the way that God designed it to work in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and being consumed instead with passion for one another. A couple things we can observe from this text. The passion for homosexuality, it's called dishonorable and it consumes us. It consumes our culture and our society with unnatural lust. Now, it's important to see here that like adultery, it's not just the act that's sinful. It's not just the homosexual act that's sinful. It's actually the desire for the homosexual act that is also sinful. Did you catch that? The passions are dishonorable. What that means is that if someone experiences same-sex attraction, attraction for someone of the same sex, when that desire, when that attraction appears... It's an opportunity for repentance. It's not an opportunity to embrace that as who I really am and who God really created me to be. It's clearly called a dishonorable passion here. And as Christians, we need to reject those unnatural desires and encourage others to reject those unnatural desires. Secondly, as I've said before, Paul is contrasting the natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, again rooting this distinction in Genesis 1 and 2. He defines that in this passage as those things that were created, the way that God created things to be. You see, the rebellion of man against God includes man's rebellion against God's design. This is why homosexuality is forbidden. Because it doesn't conform to the creational pattern. One man, one woman in the covenant of marriage is what our sexuality is created for. And homosexuality, like I said before, by definition cannot be fruitful, cannot multiply and fill the earth. The biological design, the way that God designed things to be, is men and women for sexual complementarity. Without going into detail here, men and men are not sexually complementary. Women and women are not sexually complementary, which is why Paul says it's contrary to nature. This pursuit of sexuality outside the covenant of marriage, again, includes heterosexual and homosexual pursuits, which are both forbidden in the Bible. But this isn't the only way that mankind is in rebellion The last way we see mankind in rebellion is we see people rebelling against God and his creational order in the rejection of one's God-given design, God-given identity as male and female. Those that are familiar with the acronym LGBT, 
most likely know what that last letter stands for. T stands for transgender. Transgender ideology is becoming more and more prevalent in our culture. Really ever since the, the infamous transition and very public trans transition of Bruce Jenner identifying as Caitlyn Jenner. Transgenderism as an ideology is, here's what it says. It says that some people are born with or can develop a gender identity that doesn't match their biology, which results in biological males self-identifying as women and biological females self-identifying as men. You've got to know that until very, very recently, psychologists identified this condition as a mental disorder. I'm not trying to be funny or glib here. This was the categorization in the 1994 Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for, dis for Mental Disorders. This, this book, it's a secular publication. Uh, it's considered by some people as the Bible of the discipline of psychology. In 1994, this DSNM classified anyone who cross-dresses as suffering from a mental disorder. But what happened in 2013 is this manual was actually updated to move this from a mental disorder to something known as gender dysphoria. One theory out there to explain this phenomenon is called brain sex theory. Advocates for the brain sex theory, they argue that people can be born with bodies that are maybe biologically male, but their brain is biologically female, and that's, that's where the mismatch happens. And they encourage surgery or hormone therapy so that the body can be brought in line with the brain. Another theory out there talks about a mismatch between one's sex, which is biological, and, and one's gender, which is a social construct, just made up by society. And if gender is just made up by society, then why can't society say that it's something different? Or why can't someone change out of their gender? So gender dysphoria is a kind of catch-all term that's commonly used to refer to the feeling that gender and sex are out of line. And current treatments for it range from cross-dressing to hormone therapy and hormone blockers for prepubescent adolescents, all the way to gender and sex reassignment surgery, so-called. I say so-called sex reassignment surgery because you can cut organs off, you can add organs, but you cannot change the underlying genetics and the biology of a person. Someone's born XY male, you can't get rid of the XY genetic material. The underlying genetics of a biological female will always be XX, no matter what is cut off and what is put on. But we're living in a world where not only is this kind of thing becoming more and more popular, but this ideology is becoming more and more coercive. Well, what does the Bible say about gender dysphoria? To answer this question, again, we must go back to the beginning. As we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible speaks about sex, God created them male and female, and gender. God created the man and the woman. And there's a clear ordering, there's a clear connection between male and man and female and woman. God created males for manhood. God created females for womanhood. 
This is the foundation for why we find the following prohibition in Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 22.5, what's forbidden here is cross-dressing, outwardly identifying with, with the opposite sex and the way that you dress. Well, if cross-dressing is forbidden by the Bible, how much more gender reassignment surgery, taking hormones of the opposite sex to change yourself into something you're not? The psalmist says in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, you, were crea- you created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praised you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, this is the proper response to our bodies. Recognition that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator. What we have in transgender ideology is something that's telling us that there's a, a mismatch between our psychology and our souls and our, and our bodies. But the Bible completely rejects this. Nowhere does the Bible prescribe rejecting our God-given bodies so that they, we could bring them in line with our troubled minds. Just the opposite. We read in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Sam Albury, a Christian author and speaker with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, says it this way. Our culture says your psychology is your sexual identity. Let your body be conformed to it. But the Bible says your body is your sexual identity. Let your mind be conformed to it. So is that what it says in the Bible? If it is, then this is what our biblical sexual ethic must be rooted in. The text of Psalm 100 verse 3 appears in the preamble of CBMW's Nashville Statement, that document I mentioned at the beginning. And it summarizes this statement succinctly Uh, in a lot less time what I just covered this morning. So I commend that document to you. But the text of Psalm 103, it appears in the preamble of that statement, and here's what it says. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. Amen. or um, go check on um, go check on or grab one of your uh, children uh, from nursery you can do that now um, so just take a few minutes and we'll be back here and come back here shortly okay see you in a few minutes <laughs>